You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So we're on week three of four of this Advent series, and we're not going through a book of, a, of the Bible. We've been jumping around, so I think it'd be helpful to sort of bring us up to speed, a reminder of, of what we've been doing in this Advent series titled, The Light Shines in the Darkness. So just by way of reminder, a few weeks ago in week one, we began by looking at a prophecy of the coming Messiah, the coming Savior. In Isaiah chapter 9, this was some 700 years before the birth of Christ. Um, And and there we saw in Isaiah 9 the the darkness and sinfulness and brokenness of our world, specifically God's people Judah, and the, the need of this remedy and the promise of this coming Savior, this light that would dawn on the people. And so we were looking forward from Isaiah 9. Then, then last week, Pastor Clint opened up John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. He expounded those verses for us to show us that the light entered the world, that promise of Isaiah chapter 9, uh, was fulfilled when Jesus came in the incarnation. The Word became flesh. God became man and dwelt among us and lived and died and rose from the dead. And our response to that should be that we receive Christ by faith, that we receive the light into our own dark hearts and we're inwardly transformed. As John told us last week, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, John 1.16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. We're to receive the light of Christ. So, thus far, we've seen our own darkness, our need of light, We've seen how God has met that need in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the God-man. And now, this morning, here's the question that we're aiming to answer. What do we do with this light? We who have received Christ by faith. We who are Christians. You ever think about the fact that when we become followers of Jesus Christ, we're not just beamed up to heaven. Like, we're saved and then boom, we go home. We're left here in this dark world. So what then is our purpose? What's what's our responsibility with this light that we have received? I I find a popular Christmas hymn really helpful in sort of helping us think about this question rightly. Um, There was a man named John Wesley Work who died in 1925 just to to position you and him in history. Um, He was a professor at Fisk University and was trained at Harvard as well in uh, literature. And he was well known for pioneering African-American folk music. And he and his brother devoted their lives to collecting and arranging and popularizing uh, uh, slave songs and spirituals. And so he discovered these, write tunes to them, and then his Jubilee singers would travel around and sing these songs. And one of these, one of the most popular ones, uh, is an Advent hymn called... Go tell it on the mountain. Raise your hand if you've heard that song, right? Most of us have. If not, you'll, in about 35 minutes, you will, because we'll sing it, right? And this was a spiritual, and it's a very, very simple song. It consists of, of three verses that tell you what happens at Christmas, really from Luke chapter 2, right? So verse 1 says, 
Here, this is just the facts of Luke chapter 2. While shepherds kept their watching over silent flocks by night, behold, throughout the heavens there shone a holy light. Verse 2, the shepherds feared and trembled when low above the earth rang out the angel chorus that hailed the Savior's birth. Just telling you what's happening the night Christ was born and, and the shepherds from the shepherd's point of view. Then verse 3, there's only three verses, brings in some theological significance. God has come down, right? Down in a lowly manger, the humble Christ was born. God sent us salvation that blessed Christmas morn. That's, that's what happened at Christmas. That's really what we've been talking about the last two weeks. But what I love about this song is the refrain or the chorus, as we call it, then takes those truths of Christmas, the reality of the light coming into the world, the theological significance, and then says, here's what you're to do with it. What's the refrain? What are we to do with these truths? Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. What I love about that Advent hymn is it's unique in that it is a call to evangelistic mission. And that's, that's what we're doing this morning. That's our aim, and that's the aim of Jesus in this short text that we're in in Matthew chapter 5. And again, we're, we're dropping into different passages, so some context is helpful because we are dropping into the most famous sermon in all of the, the world, right? The, the Sermon on the Mount. And here Jesus is telling his inner circle, his disciples, though there are crowds around listening, but his primary audience is his disciples. He's telling them how they must live in this dark world. And he has just finished the most famous section of the sermon called the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12, where he is focusing on the inner life of the disciple. He's saying, here is, here is what the transformed inner life looks like. And now he's turning, Matthew 5, uh, 13 through 16, our passage this morning, and say, okay, you who are transformed in this way, here's how you're to live. Here's your task. Here's your identity in this dark world. So in other words, Jesus is exhorting his disciples, and by way of extension, us, who are Christians, to, to go tell it on the mountain, to take this good news to the world around them. And so as we walk through this short passage this morning, we want to see this. We want to draw out three things about ourselves as Christians. First, we want to talk about the identity. Who are we? That's number one. Number two, we'll see the activity. What do we do? And then third and finally, the outcome. What's the result? Identity, activity, and outcome. Now, number one, who are we, according to Jesus here? What is our identity? Look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So first, Jesus tells his disciples and Christians throughout history that they are the salt of the earth. Now, this is one of those illustrations that commentators love to, to talk about and sort of speculate on what Jesus could have meant because salt had so many different purposes in the ancient world. And I love this because I think, I think it, Jesus was intentional with this because he's talking to Christians all throughout history, 
And he's, he's saying, in a sense, just as salt has a number of different purposes, so, so my people will as they go throughout this world. So instead of sort of debating, well, which one is the most likely meaning uh, uh, that, that Jesus had, I think we just embrace that imagery, right? And, and, and consider the, the ways that salt was used, yes, but not try and sort of pick one, but take the, this lesson from this brilliant teacher, Jesus, our Savior, and apply it to our lives. And so just to consider a few, and, and the, the first most prominent one, because this is the one that Jen, uh, Jesus mentions, the first use of salt is for flavoring. Right? Now, I, I think this is uh, worth considering first because Jesus says, if salt has lost its taste. So Jesus obviously has this idea when he says, you are the salt of the earth of taste, bringing taste to something. And I, I like this use because it's something that we still do today, right? Uh, the other day I was trying to eat a healthy snack, um, and trying is the key word there, right? And I, so I had a, like a bunch of chopped up cucumbers. I love cucumbers, um, but they're kind of bland. And I'm like, what can, I, what can I add to this? One option was chocolate, right? Just dip, dip it in some Nutella or something, no. Um, that sort of cancels out the healthy purpose. So I just went and got a little bit. I'm telling you, it was still healthy. I didn't like dab the thing in salt. Just a little bit of salt and just, you know, still a healthy snack. But what did it do? It added flavor. Right? That's what salt does. Now, as Christians, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. As you spread throughout the world, you are to enhance it by living your life for the glory of God. You bring something distinct you bring a blessing to the world around you, your neighbors, your coworkers, your, your friends, your family. You stand out and you add taste. You're flavorful, right? Now, this often happens as we, we walk through the New Testament. We see that this often happens through our words. This is why the Apostle Paul, and I'm convinced he had uh, Jesus' words in mind here, says in Colossians 4, 6, that our speech should be what? Seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each person. I think, I'm sure many of you have experienced this. Those of you who are living lives for the glory of God, right? as you live or work or have hobbies around people who aren't Christians and conversations happen, if you're pursuing Jesus, it's inevitable that you're going to stand out. Right? You're going you're gonna to be distinct. Maybe because of what you say, but also because of what you don't say. You don't join in the, the, the bitterness about political leaders, which is so common, right? You don't join in coarse joking. You have, a, you have this unique sense of joy about you, even when it seems like we're surrounded in a world of anxiety and stress. You're humble. You're willing to, to speak truth when the opportunity arises, but you do it in, in a, a winsome and loving way. And when that happens, that unique flavor is tasteful to a dull world. And God's people stand out. And, and your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers, those people say, I don't know what it is, but there's something different about that person. That's why Paul says when your speech is seasoned with salt, you are ready to answer each person. So salt adds flavor. Likewise, we as Christians are to add flavor in the world around us. But salt also preserves. 
Now, if you're just to bust out a study Bible or a, or a commentary, this is going to be the most prominent one that you see as you study this passage because it was the most prominent use in ancient times. It'd be the equivalent to uh, refrigeration, right? If you wanted to keep meat from decaying faster, you would rub in salt, cover it in salt, and, and this meant that salt was extremely valuable. In fact, history shows, that, shows us that Roman soldiers were sometimes paid with salt. They received what's called a salarium, which is where we get our word salary from. Right? So salt was an extremely valuable preservative at this time. And what Jesus is, I think, has in mind as we live lives of righteousness and grace and generosity and, and justice, God's preserving the goodness of the world around us through us. He's keeping this world around us, this dark world, from corruption. Just to give you an example of something I saw the other day, there's a brand new study that Barna Research Group, very reputable research group, has released showing that Christian philanthropy, so gener generous giving, has accounted for 70% of all American philanthropy in 2022 thus far. 70%. The total is $300 billion. And Christians also outgave the U.S. government in addressing global poverty. Now those numbers, to me, I saw that and I thought, man, those are outrageous numbers, right? At the same time, if we are the salt of the earth, if we're preserving the common good of God's world, that shouldn't be that surprising at all. What is God doing through his people? Through generous Christians, he is preser preserving the common good. That's who we are. If you were to study the history of Christian revivals, these moments throughout church history where God's spirit has sort of broken through a community and through churches in a supernatural way, you'll find not only are people spiritually transformed, but the society is transformed as well as a result of it. Why? Because when people are born again, when the light breaks in and they are transformed, they seek to preserve the common good of the, the people around them. Just like salt is a preservative. Now this one is so important because I think the world around us denies this. And says Christians are so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. Right? All they care about is the spiritual and they don't really do anything for the community. Well, friends, the numbers tell a completely different story. Though the world may deny this, God's people are a massive force in preserving the common good in our world today. And Jesus says, this is who you are. In addition to preserving, salt also was used in sacrifice. It was a prominent use for the Jewish people. Leviticus 2.13 says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offerings. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. And I wonder if Jesus had this in mind in light of what he just told his disciples in verses 10 and 11 of Matthew chapter 5. He just told them, You will be persecuted for the sake of the gospel. You'll experience sacrifice as you go out as the salt of the world. And many of them would pay the ultimate price of their lives for spreading the good news. The salt imagery brings sacrifice to mind. And the same is true 
for us as Christians today, as we follow in the footsteps of our crucified Savior, as we live lives of, of obedience to God in this world, it will require sacrifice. The idea that following Jesus is signing up for a life of, of earthly cushiness and comfort is far from the Bible. It will require a sacrifice of our time, our resources, our preferences, so that others may hear and believe the good news of the gospel. Jesus says, that is who you are, because that is who I am. Christ gave the ultimate sacrifice of his life, so it's no surprise that he would call those who follow him, who are the salt and light of the world, to also sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. And then lastly, one last use, and this is a surprising one. Salt in the scriptures often refers to judgment. The reason I say this is surprising, I've studied this passage many times. This was the first time restudying it again that I, I realized that, that this one, because more often than anything else, when salt is referred to in the Bible, it is, it is in reference to God's judgment. More often than any of those other examples. For example, Genesis 19, 26. Lot's wife is turned into a pillar of salt when she looks back with desire on the destruction of Sodom. Jesus, when he's, he's talking about his second advent, when he's going to return to judge and gather his people, he simply says this about Genesis 19. He says, remember Lot's wife. Right? That pillar of salt is meant to be a, a reminder of the judgment of God on those who don't believe. Jesus also very plainly says in Mark 9.49 of this coming judgment, this is one of those verses that doesn't fit on the, the Christian coffee cup, right? For everyone will be salted with fire, right? Talking about his judgment. Now, how, how does this work for us? Because I think we can misuse this and say, okay, see, our, soul, our responsibility as salt is to go out and just constantly tell people how judged they are. That should be our only message. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. You need Jesus. Like sort of hellfire and brimstone. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. So, so then what, what is he talking about here? If he's, if he's referring to salt as judgment, well, here's what that means. As Christians live righteous, countercultural lives that both display the gospel and declare the gospel, Actions and words, as that happens, we're proclaiming the coming judgment of Jesus. Jesus will return. And as the world sees that and hears that, but scoffs and rejects it, because not everyone will believe, it is to their own destruction. So as we live as salt of the earth, we're doing all of those things. We're spreading throughout the earth, and we're bringing blessing. We're adding sort of this, this blessing of God's presence. Right? We're, we're preserving the common good. But in doing so, we are also proclaiming that God is coming back. Judgment is coming for those who do not believe. So, there's a lot jam-packed into that one word, right? But Jesus says, this is who you are. And then he moves to the light illustration, where we've been spending a lot of time the last couple weeks. Jesus says, you, verse 14, are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill that cannot be hidden. 
This is a bit of a different use of this illustration, isn't it? Because for the last two weeks, we've been talking about Jesus being the light of the world. You heard it last week. Pastor Clint clearly said, John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Yet here, he says, you are the light of the world. Now, there's no contradiction here. Why? Because when Jesus says, you are the light of the world to his disciples, he is saying, you are a reflecting light. You're not the source. You remember that illustration Pastor Clint used last week? As the the moon reflects the sun, so we reflect the light of Christ. He is the sun, we are the moon. What I love about that imagery of the moon is because the moon waxes and wanes, right? Sometimes the brightness of of Christ's light from his people is, is dim in certain times in history. Sometimes it's brighter. But we reflect the light of Christ. Or, to use a more Christmassy illustration, all of the lights at your house right now, on your tree, on your house, wherever it may be, they don't produce light in and of themselves. They need an outside source. Whether it's a battery pack or they're plugged into a wall, right? In the same way, our, our electricity source, our light source is Jesus. But now he says, you are my lights to this world. That's how this light is going to get out. And he uses this picture of a city in an ancient world of darkness. When you approached a, an elevated city in the evening, which you would try not to do. You'd try not to travel at night, but it would happen. What, how would you know where the city is? You would see the brightness of the lights as you were approaching the city. Or for us, think of when you're flying at night and you're flying over cities, maybe you're flying up the East Coast or, or West Coast or whatever it is, and you can see these big cities because of the brightness of city lights gathered together. And so to be the light of the world means that the person and work of Jesus, who is the, the light of the world, the source, are seen in us. They're seen in how we display and declare the reality of Jesus and his gospel. And I want to pause for a second and just encourage you to consider how mind-blowing this is. That Jesus tells a group of ragtag, blue-collar fishermen, you are the light of the world. He doesn't, he doesn't go to the palaces He doesn't find the the brilliant philosophers, not first, the gospel would get to them. He doesn't find the the sort of cream of the crop. No, he, he gathers these nobodies and says, you are the light of the world. And what's incredible about this statement is it's not just to those disciples. It's to every disciple, every follower of Christ. So before we get to the task What we do, we need to consider how humbling this privilege is. That Jesus would look at us, sinners like us, people who don't have it all together, and say, I have chosen you to take this light to a dark world. That should instill joy in our hearts and humility that God would take ordinary Christians and say, You're the one who's going to carry this torch. Who's going to carry this light. You're going to be the salt of the earth. You're going to be the light of the world. Now, this begs the question then. As salt and light, what do we do in this world? 
How do we fulfill this sort of mission of being salt and light? And that leads to number two. So number one, identity, we're salt and light. Number two, activity. What do we do? This is where Jesus tells us to let our light shine. Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Now, first we see our activity in the negative here. Jesus is telling us what not to do. Now, uh, if you go back to the salt imagery, notice in verse 13, Jesus says you can lose your saltiness. Right? It, can be, it can be trampled upon. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So he says salt shouldn't lose its saltiness. In other words, you should live like a Christian. Because if you claim to be a Christian but live like the rest of the world, you lose your saltiness. Likewise, he goes on and says, a city shouldn't be hidden and a lamp shouldn't be covered. So those are the negatives, right? Don't lose your saltiness. City can't be hidden. Lamp shouldn't be covered. Now think of this lamp imagery for, for a second. In a time when there was no electricity, you really didn't do much after dark, right? There was no like, all right, now I can catch up on the the Netflix show I've been waiting to binge watch, right? Or let me check my Twitter account. No, when it was dark, there was, there was no light, and it wasn't easy even to bring a lot of lamp light because most homes had this sort of one main room, and uh, oil was costly, so you wouldn't light like five or six different lamps. You would usually have one lamp that you would light, and you'd put it in an elevated place so that you can finish up any household items that you had to do before you went to bed. So to, the idea of covering it up with a lampshade, right, spending the time, spending the money for the oil, spending the energy to light this lamp, put it in a prominent place, and cover it up is completely absurd. That's the point of Jesus' illustration. Why would you ever do this? You wouldn't. So Jesus is saying, listen, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but you don't live a life that is distinctly Christian, it looks like just the, the rest of the world, then you lose your saltiness and you cover up the light of Christ. Right? That's the negative. Don't do that. Now here's the positive. Let your light shine before men. What is the activity of the Christian? To let your light shine before men. Men. Now, how do we do that? I think this is helpful to think of in two categories, and you've heard me say it already. One is declaring the gospel with our words. The other is displaying the gospel with our lives. Declaring the truth about who God is from his word, and then displaying a life that has been transformed by that truth. You can't have one without the other. Okay? Now, where do I get this from? Did I just pick it because it's two D's and it's like a cool preacher trick? No. This is biblical. This is the pattern of Jesus' ministry. How do we know this? Well, the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, Luke, says this in Acts chapter 1. He's introducing the book of Acts and he's reminding Theophilus, who he's dedicating the book to, of what he did in his gospel, of what he wrote. And he says that... In the Gospel of Luke, he, quote, dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. You hear that? Do and teach. Display, declare. Action and word. And then Luke writes the book of Acts, which describes God's people, the early church, 
going on in following in the pathway of Jesus and doing and teaching, displaying and declaring the life in the gospel, the life of Christ in a life transformed by the gospel. We see this all over the, the New Testament as well. These, these New Testament writers who were sitting at Jesus' feet in Matthew 5, one of the clearest teachings of, of this display and declare is, is from Peter. And I am convinced that he had Matthew 5, 13 through 16 in mind when he wrote uh, in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, talking to Christians, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim or declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter's saying that is the purpose. You have been called out of darkness into light. You now are the light and you are to proclaim. You're to declare this truth. You shine the light of Christ. You let your light shine by proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And this is news that must be shared verbally. It is not possible. There's this, there's this quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Um, and it's, it, he didn't actually say it. And it's uh, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Maybe you've heard that before. That's ridiculous. You can't, you can't declare news by how you live your life. You can be a kind person and you can stand out, but if you don't share why you have been transformed, you're just another kind person. There are plenty of kind people who are not Christians. There are, there are plenty of great neighbors who don't know the gospel. It's a, it's a message that must be proclaimed. That's why Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So friends, as you let your light shine, you must declare the gospel. What is this gospel to be proclaimed? I find it helpful to say, if I can have a summary of the gospel to share it in one minute, that's just going to help me. So what then is this gospel? God is a holy creator. He made everything, including you and me. And he made us to live in joyful fellowship, obedience, and worship of him. But mankind rebelled against God, disobeyed. And God, who is just, will bring judgment against us. But in his grace, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who reversed that curse of our sin and disobedience and rebellion. How did he do that? Because he lived a sinless life that we could never live, and he died the death of a sinner in our place, and he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, so that all who believe in him will not perish, but be restored to joyous fellowship for which we were created forever. That is the good news of the gospel. If you have not believed that message, friends, let me encourage you. Trust in Christ today. That is where transformation happens. As Christians, we should be ready to declare the excellencies of Christ to those God has placed around us. Now, you've got to pray about what that looks like in your scenario, right? Where you live, work, and play. But let me encourage you. Become so fluent in the gospel and its application that it just becomes a natural part of conversation. And this is why we try to equip you with resources, the evangelistic resource Pastor Clint mentioned, so you can be intentional, right, especially around a season like Christmas, where people are just hearing Advent hymns about the incarnation. It's a great opportunity. Declare the gospel, but 
That's not all. Because in addition to our declaring, we must also let our light shine by displaying a life transformed by Jesus. Peter goes on in 1 Peter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He's saying, live a transformed life. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, which means non-believers, honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter moves from proclaiming and declaring to displaying. He's saying, live a lifestyle of holiness and honor. And I love this. That word for honorable is the, the it, Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5. It goes beyond just moral righteousness. It's talking about beauty, a life that is attractive to the world around us. You see, if we merely speak the truths of the gospel without a transformed life that displays the power of the gospel, then we're not shining the light of Christ properly. It's dim. That doesn't mean perfection. We're sinners in need of grace every single moment of our lives. But we need a life that does both. Because a Christian in word only is no Christian at all. And if you say one thing, but, but your life betrays what you say, that's called hypocrisy. Living contrary to the gospel. And friends, it's interesting to note that the greatest enemies of Jesus in his earthly ministry were the Pharisees. Right? They hated Jesus. And they knew all the truths of the Bible. They knew all the theological nuances of the Old Testament and even the coming Messiah. And they were happy to discuss theology and scripture but they were completely oblivious to their need of Christ themselves. So they were self-righteous, greedy, and godless. They declared, but they did not display. To claim Christ with our lips and to live a life that completely betrays the word of Christ is as absurd as covering a lamp or, or as impossible as hiding a city, right? So, friends, let's prayerfully ask ourselves, are we displaying in declaring the gospel, the light of Christ with our lives. If not, and surely, friends, every one of us need to grow in these areas, including myself. If not, why not? Now, I think there's all sorts of ways to, to help you with this, give you all sorts of recommendations of evangelistic tips. There's great books on the, the resource table. All of those things are great. Classes. We wrote a class on how to share the gospel. But all, all of those are great, but they're secondary. Do you know what the best motivator is for you and I to let our light shine before men? It's that our own hearts are enamored with Jesus and what he's done for us. That is the best. If you say, you know what, I want to grow in this. I want to grow at living a life that displays Christ and, and declaring the gospel to those around me. The best thing you can do is be reawakened to, to the miracle of grace and Jesus' love for you. So that it just overflows in your life. I have a friend who's recently fallen in love. It's hilarious to watch. I love it. Um, and this happened later in life for him. And he was like committed to singleness, you know. And he's, he's really leveraged his life for ministry. And then boom, he just falls in love. And guess what he talks about all the stinking time. He talks about this woman. You can't get him to close his mouth about her, right? He's not sheepish about it. He doesn't, he doesn't hide it. It's this joyous overflow 
of this love he has. So anyone who's going to give him an ear, he's going he's to tell them about her. Right? Now, guys, you might hear that illustration and be like, yeah, that's kind of weird, a little too romantic for me. Okay, here's, here's another one. My son saw a movie the other day, and he said, quote, that it was the greatest movie I have seen in my entire life. Right? I've had that experience before, right? And guess what he didn't need? He didn't need a class teaching him a four-step process of how to share the glories of this movie with others. Because he was so captured by this movie that he loves, it just overflowed in his speech. He wanted to talk about how great it was. Why? Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. A tree is known by its fruit. Charles Spurgeon, uh, English pastor, in the 1800s, talks about this. He says, if Jesus is precious to you, you will, be not, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You'll be whispering it into your child's ear. You'll be telling it to your husband. You'll be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you'll be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Be wise in your generation and speak of him in fitting ways and at fitting times. And so in every place, proclaim the fact that Jesus is most precious to your soul. Oh man, that convicted me so much this week. Friends, could it be that the light is dim in our lives because we have lost the love and fervor and exhilaration of knowing Christ? Oh God, restore that to us. Maybe that's the reason we're not as willing to go tell it on the mountain, right? Because we've forgotten the miracle that God sent us salvation on that blessed Christmas morn. So if that's you, I think it's most of us, here's a great prayer to pray this Advent season and a prayer that God loves to answer. Holy Spirit, awaken my heart to the incredible reality of your love and grace for me in Jesus. So much so that I'm willing to display and declare the light of Christ to those in darkness around me. That's the activity of the Christian. Now, what happens from here? And that leads us, as we begin to come to a close, to the outcome, the result. Second half of verse 16. So that, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the goal. The salvation of sinners for the glory of God. That's, that's our hope as we shine the light of Christ. Now these disciples who are, who are hearing this, they would go on to be the, some prominent preachers, theologians, famous people in church history, yet Jesus is reminding them the goal is not accolades. Right? The, the goal is not personal recognition. The goal is not who's the best evangelist. The goal is the glory of God through the salvation of sinners. And this brings us full circle to Advent, doesn't it? Because when Christ came down at Christmas, it was the greatest evangelistic mission that the universe has ever known. What did Christ do? He left the comforts of heaven to bring the good news, which is himself, to a sin-infested world. In word and deed, Displaying and declaring, he glorified the Father. He laid down his life, rose from the dead, that we may see 
and be reconciled by faith that we too may give glory to our Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus did what he is calling us to do. And he gives us now the privilege to take this message to a dark world. I had a mentor say when I was younger, Jesus' last words are our first priority. You know what Jesus said right before he ascended into heaven where he's enthroned right now? He said, you will receive power to his disciples when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will let your light shine in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. His great commission in Matthew 28 He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go shine the light, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Friends, this is why we are left here after we come to Christ. This is the mission, that we may bring the gospel to a dark world, and that they may see and believe and glorify our Father in heaven. Now, as we read on in the New Testament, we see this small group of disciples listening to Jesus in Matthew 5. Through them, the gospel spreads like wildfire. Now, was it, was it difficult? Absolutely. Church has always experienced difficulty and opposition to the gospel. Was it perfect? Of course not. These men and women were sinners, just like you and I. Did everyone believe and welcome them with open arms? Nope, absolutely not. The salvation of souls belongs to the sovereign Lord, not to us. But they knew their identity as salt and light. And they were committed to the activity of displaying and declaring Christ. And guess what? Jesus fulfilled verse 16b. Many saw and have seen and are still seeing and have turned and are now giving glory to God the Father. Christ built his church. He is building his church. He will continue to do so. So much so that here we are, 2,000 years later, in a gym in Waltham, declaring the excellencies of Christ to one another. So church, as we close, living as salt and light will be difficult. There will be opposition. You're going to make mistakes. Not everyone is going to respond in the way we hope and pray. But for the glory of the Father and for the good of those around us, it is worth it. So may we, by the power of the Spirit, walk in our identity as salt and light and carry out the task of displaying and declaring Jesus, the one who has come to save us for the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together.